Ah, oh, I have a dream. Has entered popular culture as one of the most famous sound bites in history. It was uh, the refrain, uh, the repeated line in a speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave on the 28th of August 1963. A speech widely understood to be one of the greatest speeches ever made in the English language. Well, um, this morning we continue a series of sermons uh, on, for want of a better title, Famous Christians of the 20th Century. This series is offered in the light of the fact that it is good and helpful to consider how the grace of God has been manifest in the lives of other Christians so that we might be, in the words of our prayer book, encouraged by their example to run with perseverance the race that lies before us. So today we'll be looking at Martin Luther King Jr., Who was Martin Luther King Jr.? Well, uh, he was born in 1929. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was the son of a clergyman, Martin Luther King Sr. Actually, when he was born, his name was Michael King Jr., named after his father, who was Michael King Sr. But in 1934, um, his dad went on a trip to Germany for a global Baptist convention and Um, Michael King Sr. was so inspired by the story of Martin Luther that he changed both his own name and his son's name in order to honor him. And so he became Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Raised in Atlanta, a southern state um, of the U.S., Martin Jr. moved up from high school early, starting university at 15 years of age and studying sociology. He then enrolled in a Bible college in Pennsylvania for theological studies before doing a PhD in systematic theology in Boston. Uh, Dr. King married uh, uh, Coretta Scott in 1953 and when they went on to have four children. And he was called as a pastor to his first church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, in 1954 at the age of 25. From that position, uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King soon became the best known of the leaders of the American Civil Rights Movement. Now, that movement began in the mid-50s when the U.S. Supreme Court found that it was unconstitutional for public schools to be segregated. The court ruled for segregation, therefore, of schools, that is, that black kids and white kids had to be kept separate. That's what segregation was. The court ruled for segregation of schools to be phased out. And from about that time, there were many and varied protests, strikes and demonstrations in which black people protested the humiliations and deprivations of segregation by ignoring the rules that kept them separate and having to live lives of inferior quality. Perhaps the most famous of the early protests was that of Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. On December the 1st, 1955, um, an African-American woman, a black woman, Rosa Parks, refused to give up her seat for a Caucasian one, that is, a a white woman, um, as she was um, legally obliged to do under segregation. She was arrested tried and convicted of disorderly conduct and violating a local ordinance. 
um, the African-American community uh, was outraged, and most of the 50,000 African-American inhabitants of Montgomery boycotted the bus system. Finally, after 381 days, the local officials changed the rule and ended segregation on buses, and the boycott ended. The boycott had reduced the bus company's uh, um, income by 80%. In 1959, nine African-American high school students attempted to uh, attend their local Little Rock Central High School, a school that had been integrated but had not yet accepted African-American students. On the first day, only one of the nine students arrived. The National Guard was called out to keep the protesters at bay. Each day, the students were escorted by soldiers of the 101st Airborne Division, and if they were ever unaccompanied, they were jeered, spat upon, and physically attacked by the other students. Only one of the nine students graduated from the school. And through the late 50s and early 60s, protests, rallies, sit-ins, strikes, it, it all gathered momentum. Now, the American civil rights uh, movement has been characterized by being firstly a direct action protest. That is to say, it was designed to create a crisis, whilst being at the same time, secondly, non-violent protest. This means that those who were agitating for change refused to use violence as a means of making the change. The protesters broke rules, uh, such as sitting in whites-only lounges or cafes, but they didn't use violence. And this, uh, um, this characterization of uh, the protest as direct action, non-violent, was largely the influence of one man, Martin Luther King. You see, King had traveled to India to meet Gandhi um, in 1959. And uh, he said of uh, him later, quote, Since being in India, I am more convinced than ever before that the method of non-violent resistance is the most potent weapon available to oppressed people in their struggle for justice and human dignity. In a real sense, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravitation. Unquote. Um, it is important to understand that this didn't mean that violence didn't happen. Oh no, there was lots of violence. Violence was routinely used against the, against the protesters. Um, many of them were jailed, beaten, spat upon, tortured, shot, killed. The key point in nonviolent resistance is that violence is not used to overpower the enemy, even when, especially when, that enemy uses violence against you. One such protest, uh, uh, one such protest was the, the um, Birmingham campaign of April 1963, when in black people uh, occupied public spaces uh, with marches and sit-ins, openly violating the segregationist laws. During the protests, police used high-pressure water jets, police dogs, and violence against the protesters, including children. 
The protests and the police response ended up on television, shocking the people of the United States of America and all around the world, drawing huge attention to the movement and consolidating the black American cause. Uh, Dr. King <laughs> was himself arrested, along with large numbers of others. It was his 13th out of 29 arrests. Uh, from his prison cell, Dr. King uh, wrote a letter of response to a group of local white pastors who were sympathetic, who were on his side, but thought that he was doing the wrong thing by way of these protests. They felt that it, this whole thing was getting out of hand. It was moving too fast. It was dangerous. And that Dr. King and his associates should slow down and wait for action by the appropriate authorities through the correct channels through the courts. Dr. King uh, took uh, the time he had available to him uh, in court, to, uh, sorry, in, in his, his, in his, his um, um, cell to uh, answer the concerns in a letter known simply as Letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, it is worth quoting in part, and so I'll say a little bit about what's in that letter. Uh, he writes... <clears throat> we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given up by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct, a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence, and we creep at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. <laughs> I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, Wait! But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your fathers and mothers at will and drown your brothers and sisters at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smoldering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to, to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see it begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people when you have to concoct an answer for your five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, 
Why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs, reading. White and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., and when you are harried day by, when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobliness, you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. And on August 28 of that same year, 1963, um, Dr. King took part in the massive march on Washington, D.C., the nation's capital city. More than a quarter of a million people turned up, including many white people, to demand change. It was at this event that Dr. King delivered um, his 17-minute speech, uh, I Have a Dream. Uh, the speech begins with a metaphor. If you're old enough to have ever written out a check, uh, you'll understand uh, the metaphor. Uh, he begins, uh, in a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. And uh, from there, the speech progresses. And after a little, little while, uh, Dr. King details um, their shared discontent. Uh, he says, We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police, police brutality. We can never be satisfied as long as our bodies, heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from one smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating, for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing to vote for. No, no, no. We, and we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. 
and, and, and then towards the end, um, uh, he introduces his I have a dream refrain, which is repeated nine times uh, towards the end of the speech. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering, with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day uh, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, That one day, right down in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Um, From uh, that day, um, I will uh, fast forward now uh, to the day of Dr. King's death in Memphis, Tennessee. He was there in support of uh, black employees who were striking for better treatment. Uh, His flight to Memphis had been delayed because of a bomb threat made against the aircraft because he was on it. Uh, Dr. King was uh, shot... (laughs) Dr. King uh, was shot by an assassin as he stood at 6 o'clock at night on the balcony of his uh, motel. He died an hour later, 7 p.m., April 4. Uh, The night before, April 3rd, Martin Luther King had preached uh, a sermon, his last sermon. Uh, It's become known as his I've been to the mountaintop speech. In the speech, he places himself in the shoes of Moses, insofar as Moses was never allowed to enter into the the promised land. Rather, God took him to a mountaintop and showed him the promised land, but he was never allowed to enter in. No, he would die before the Israelites (laughs) went in, under the leadership of Joshua, um, his assistant. Referring to the bomb threat, and indeed in the light of many, many threats on his life, Dr. King um, preached in that sermon saying, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to have a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. 
I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get the promised land. I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And, uh, of course, less than 24 hours later, uh, he was dead. Um, for me personally, um, one of the extraordinary things about those words is this is just an astonishing testimony to the power of the peace of God uh, that can come over people when they've just utterly surrendered it all into God's hand and they know that their life is in God's hand. Well, um, legacy. Let's talk about legacy. I don't really think I can really do Dr. King justice with respect to the true nature of his legacy, but um, maybe just uh, quickly a few things to note. Firstly, that within days of his death, the U.S. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1968, an act that continues to be amended and is the principal vehicle by which discrimination in the U.S. is legally challenged. Secondly, uh, the American Civil Rights Movement actually had many great leaders, but the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave that movement, um, he was the right man at the right time, a brilliant spokesperson, someone who was astonishingly brave, astonishingly clear thinking, someone who could keep his head in a crisis, and someone who could speak, and by speaking, change the world. And globally, uh, it's recognized that the principle of nonviolent protest which King took from Gandhi has probably saved millions upon millions of lives. Certainly, the principle was used to end apartheid in South Africa and saved that nation from what would otherwise have been an inevitable and exceedingly bloody civil war. Likewise in Poland, likewise in East Germany, likewise with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So with those few words about his legacy, let's conclude by thinking theologically about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's witness. Um, uh, Probably the right place to start is uh, to to use this as an opportunity to um, examine our hearts for hatreds and prejudice. Uh, Very, very few of us would uh, consider ourselves uh, uh, racist. Um, And yet, you know, I know that Prejudices and hatreds are very, are, very, are very capable of hiding secretly in our hearts. Um, and from time to time, I become aware of them by, by the gentle, gentle handprint of the Holy Spirit that such a hatred uh, or prejudices in my heart towards maybe this person or this group of people or whatever. And uh, today is an opportunity for us to examine our hearts um, and, and to consider Um, whether there's prejudice and hatred in our hearts. Um, Beyond that, um, uh, perhaps I could say that conversely, I'm not entirely comfortable with the way that Dr. King appropriates kingdom of God language in his speeches. Um, Dr. King said, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And when he said that, he meant that he could see social change coming. To equate social change the social change that human beings are capable of with the cosmic change that will accompany the return of Jesus Christ, that's a mistake. Only when Jesus returns will the reign of sin and death be completely destroyed. Ultimately, the real return of Jesus is our only hope for the future. 
Nevertheless, it is an equally serious mistake to completely uncouple the two things. We have completely misunderstood the message about the kingdom if it doesn't translate into concerted action regarding unjust social structures on behalf of others. To quote again from Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail, he says, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. But perhaps um, Dr. King's theological genius is seen most clearly in how he was able to understand direct action and nonviolent protest and how they go hand in hand. Um, Jesus' teachings that we've read together this morning about not resisting an evil person, um, about turning the other cheek, letting them have your coat as well as your shirt, those teachings are regularly interpreted by Christians as a command by Jesus to become a doormat, to let people walk all over you and to be trodden on um, and walked right over. Uh, But actually, that's not what Jesus is talking about at all. Um, In every one of the scenarios that Jesus describes, he describes an active rather than passive response. Jesus is teaching direct action, non-violent protest, as a practical way of loving enemies. To be slapped on the right cheek is to receive a backhander and to be treated as a subordinate or slave. But to be slapped on the left cheek by way of, from a right-hander by way of an open, soft part of the hand slap is to be rebuked, to be sure, but it is to be rebuked as a social equal. To demand a left cheek slap after you've received a right cheek slap is to accept the rebuke, but to demand social equality. And if you give up your cloak as well as your tunic, you have handed over what is likely to be, for most people, your most valuable possession. And after, of course, you've surrendered your tunic and your cloak, you are standing there naked, not wearing anything. Um, And standing there naked, you will bring great shame and disapproval and censure upon the rich man who has done this to you because it is unreasonable uh, to ever render another human being uh, such an undignified place. The Roman soldier could demand of any Jewish citizen at any time that they immediately stop whatever it is that they're doing so that they might carry the backpack, um, the, the, the weapons and armor that belong to you as a Roman soldier. And this was an extraordinarily good way of, of, of ringing home the message that as a non-Roman citizen, you were an inferior being. Um, and, and you had by law to go 1,600 steps but not more. That was against the law. To go the second mile is to put the soldier at risk of court-martial. And suddenly, the boot is on the other foot. 
when he realizes that you're not going to press charges, you've won a friend. Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.